continuing our study in the book of Matthew this morning. Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 33. If you're new with us and you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the back of the pew that you're welcome to use, and you'll find this morning's text on page 817. 817. Matthew chapter 12, verse 33. And so, and if you're unfamiliar with using a Bible, uh, the, the big number, chapter 12, little number, verse 33. I don't want to alienate you because we are going to be using this Bible all day long or all morning long. So I want to make sure you know how to use it. Matthew 12, verse 33 and following, our Lord says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person, out of his good treasure, brings forth good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. This is the word of our Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, already reading this, all of us here have recognized very quickly we can believe this as true and so know that we have come to you naked with nothing in our hands knowing that we need a savior or we simply reject this not as your word as something that is just written down is good advice. And Lord, I know this morning that the only way we can hear this as your word is if it's your Holy Spirit in us telling us that this is your word. So Spirit, speak to us this morning. And for those who have rejected this, Lord, awaken their hearts by your Spirit. Give us wisdom as we listen to you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, James, the brother of Jesus, he teaches us that the tongue is a restless evil, full of deadly poison, and he says no human being can tame it. James teaches us we can, we can tame every kind of beast in all the world. Elephants, dolphins, lions, But no human being can tame the tongue. And the reason that James brings this up in James chapter 3 is because he's making this argument that not many people should aspire to be teachers. Teachers, after all, talk a lot. So, So when you combine the power of speech and the responsibility to teach with the evil that lurks in the heart of humanity you get this deadly recipe. 
And so he says, not many of you should be teachers. And he goes on, teachers will be judged with greater strictness. Well, the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Roman church, he he makes this, this very detailed argument throughout the book of Romans that God's justice and His righteousness and His love and His mercy are displayed where? At the cross of Christ. Because at the cross, our sin, just as we sang, at, at, our, at the cross, our sin is atoned for. And then he asks this question, well, who is Christ for? He's not the Savior of, of just Jews, but of the Gentiles also. Why? Because... He says in Romans chapter 3, Jews and Gentiles, and that's Bible speak for everybody, we're all born sinners. And so then what evidence do you think Paul uses to show us that none of us is righteous? No one, no, not one. No one seeks God. His evidence for our unrighteousness is our words. Romans 3.13, quoting Psalm 5 as we read earlier, Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. And he goes on to quote Psalm 140. The venom of asps is under their lips. And he keeps quoting the psalm, Psalm 10. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. So for Paul, what proves that we need a Savior? Our words. And this is consistently the argument throughout the Bible. Paul is, after all, quoting the Psalms. Pastor Saunders read Psalm 5 for us, and what would we see there? Again, the wicked are known by their words. And the Proverbs teach this, too, all over the place. I'll just, just, I'm just going to pick one chapter from Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 10. Proverbs 10, 11. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Proverbs 10, 13. On the lips of him who has understanding, wisdom is found, but a rod is for the back of him who lacks sense. Proverbs 10, 14. The wise lay up knowledge, but the mouth of a fool brings ruin near. And then verse 20 of the same chapter. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is of little worth. Verse 21. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of sense. Verse 31, the mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, but the perverse tongue will be cut off. Verse 32, the lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked, what is perverse. That's just a few verses from one chapter in Proverbs. The entire book of Proverbs is about seeking wisdom and running from foolishness. And to teach this lesson, Solomon teaches that one of the ways to tell a wise and righteous person from a foolish and wicked person is by their words. We're judged according to our words. And that truth goes back further. Going back in time, past the wisdom literature, all the way back to the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, what tool did the devil use to deceive the woman? It wasn't his beauty, was it? It wasn't his power. It wasn't his his magic. It was his mouth. The things he said, his words, proved his wickedness. And Jesus said in John 8 that when the devil lies... 
he is speaking out of his own character. It's who he is. He can't help it. And that's the teaching throughout the Bible. Our words reveal who we really are. And that's exactly what Jesus is teaching here in our text this morning as we finally make our way back into the Gospel of Matthew. And it's been a while, November to be precise, the week before Thanksgiving. And so since it's been a while, since we were in Matthew, I need to remind you of where we are in this Gospel story according to Matthew. The context of our passage is that the opposition to Jesus' ministry has begun to become more central to the events that are taking place in the story. So th- we've had this opposition since the beginning. But it, but it, all, it, it started out kind of quiet, kind of, kind of mild. I don't know if you remember, back in chapter 9 of Matthew, Jesus heals the paralytic. But before he heals him, he says, your sins are forgiven. Do you remember that? And what happened then? The, the Pharisees thought to themselves, this is blasphemy. Jesus reads their minds and, and corrects them. But, but, but their opposition started just as thoughts. It wasn't out loud. And then in the next section, Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees see this and they say something out loud. They ask the disciples, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? This, this wasn't addressed at everybody. It was just a small group, but their opposition has gone from the heart and the mind to their lips. And then a little bit later, Jesus heals a, a mute man by casting out the demon that he has. And the Pharisees say publicly, but this time to nobody in particular, but, but out loud, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. And then in chapter 11, we, we keep going and find out there's this, this rumor spreading that Jesus is a drunk and a glutton. And then in chapter 12, this rising conflict in the story becomes very central to the story. It seems like everything that Jesus does, everything that he says is met with an argument. His disciples pluck grain on the Sabbath and the Pharisees are following around the grain field and they accuse him. He heals on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees question him. And Jesus responds, but that only makes them angrier. And Matthew tells us they went out and conspired how to kill him. Not long after that, a man who is demon-possessed and blind and mute is brought to Jesus. And Jesus heals that man. And the crowds are all watching, and they see it. And if you remember... This was a direct fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 35. This proved he was the Messiah. And the crowds are amazed. And they begin to get the picture. This could be the son of David. This could be the Messiah. And they begin asking one another. And the Pharisees hear the crowds. And they seek to put a stop to this excitement as quickly as possible. They say, no, 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 no. This isn't the Messiah. This is the work of Satan. Jesus is casting out demons by the power of Satan. And that gets us to where we are this morning in our passage. Our passage this morning is the second part of Jesus' response to the Pharisees' accusation. 
Last November, we saw him first of all warn the Pharisees about the very, very real danger that they were in of saying that something that the Holy Spirit is doing was actually done by some other demonic power. And this week, we see that he's still speaking to the Pharisees, but you get the sense, and you probably sensed it too, he's also speaking to everyone who's listening to him there. Because the crowds are there, the Pharisees are there, Matthew's there, and he's written this down for us, and we get to read it. He's speaking to everyone who's listening. And so what we're reading here is an explanation from Jesus on why the Pharisees insist on speaking against Christ and the Holy Spirit and the kingdom of God. Jesus is explaining it for us. And and, and why is it that they insist on opposing the kingdom? It's because of what's in their hearts. Their hearts are in defiance against the kingdom of God and the king himself. So let's follow the passage and see how this plays out. Look at verse 33. Again, in the Pew Bible, at page 817, verse 33, we'll also have it on the screen. If you're new to Del Cerro, this is how we do church. We let God speak to us. So Jesus establishes his argument, first of all, in verse 33. And he uses this agricultural principle. A tree is known by its fruit. I mean, and we understand this. A tree with bitter fruit has bitter fruit because that's what type of tree it is. Cherry tree has cherry tree genetics in it. It produces fruit according to its nature. A tree bears good, sweet, nourishing fruit because that's what type of tree it is. And so so Jesus takes that principle that everybody understands and and he applies it to those who are opposing him. And then he he mixes that principle with this, this principle from the animal kingdom. A tree is known by its fruit in the same way a snake is known by its poison. Right? What's the difference? And we need to know this difference in San Diego County. What's the difference between a gopher snake and a rattlesnake? Their their, their markings look really similar. And there are numerous differences that could save your life. A rattlesnake has that triangular head and the gopher snake doesn't. The rattlesnake has a rattle on its tail. The gopher snake doesn't. But the most critical difference is that the rattlesnake's fangs contain deadly venom. In the same way, these Pharisees are spewing venom from their mouths. And so Jesus draws the obvious conclusion. It's because it's in their nature to do that. They are, by nature, venomous snakes. They are the children of vipers. Brood of vipers, he says. That just means children of a group of children from vipers. Look at that in verse 34. And then look at the rhetorical question he directs at the Pharisees. Given that they are a brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? How can you? It's rhetorical. In other words, you cannot speak good because you are by your very nature evil 
Your fruit is bad because you're a bad tree. Your mouth has venom in it because you are a viper. Your words are evil because you are evil. And he keeps going. Look at the rest of verse 34. For, he's going to give us the the principle here. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's Jesus saying? Out of the abundance of the heart. Some of your Bibles say out of the overflow of your heart. Some say from what your heart is full of, the mouth says. The point is that the mouth, just like a river, is downstream. The mouth is downstream from the heart. And whatever is in the heart will come out of the mouth. Not might. Not maybe. The mouth will put on display what is in the heart. Might take a while. Some people are profoundly skilled at keeping their mouths from revealing what's in their heart. Proverbs 17.28 says, Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's deemed intelligent. I love that verse. But he can't keep silent forever, can he? Eventually, this rings true. The mouth will betray the heart. Listen, Listen to what a person says when they're in their car all by themselves, or in their house, all by themselves. Listen to what they say when they're around their closest friends, people that they trust. And I'll stop saying they now, because I think we, we all know who we are, and we all know how our own mouths have betrayed what's in our hearts. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, but he's talking to us. All of us speak from our hearts. I was in my vegetable garden on Friday morning. And oftentimes I'm using that time in the garden to listen to a sermon from another pastor or or a lecture or a book that I'm listening to. Sometimes, though, on Friday mornings, especially on Friday mornings, I'll use that time in the garden to meditate on the passage that I'm going to be preaching on on Sunday. And so I'm watering the vegetables, the cabbages, and I'm praying, and I'm thinking about Matthew 12. And I'm happy, and I'm looking forward to preaching, and I peel back this cabbage leaf, and I find thousands and thousands of aphids and even though I was all by myself my words revealed my heart (laughs) I really I really don't like aphids and I've been trying to get rid of these 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 parasites all winter but they won't go away and I was angry at them And and I was angry at my inability to control nature, and all of that just erupted out of my heart, and I said things to those aphids (laughs) that would disqualify me as a pastor, right? And immediately, though, immediately, because I'd been chewing on this text, I thought, oh, that's what Jesus meant, right? Right out of my heart came those words, and there was no other source There's no other source. There is no other source. Our words reveal our hearts. 
Now, we could, we could try to blame, couldn't we? We could try to blame the aphids, and that's a metaphor for the rest of you, okay? It's their fault that I reacted that way. If they hadn't been there, I wouldn't have said those things. If that guy had not cut you off on the freeway, if that person had not taken your parking spot you were eyeing, you wouldn't have said those things. If your husband or your wife or your boss or your coworker or your kid had not done whatever it is that you didn't like, you wouldn't have said those things. As if our words are just some sort of natural, physical phenomena that responds to circumstances. Like when there's moisture in the atmosphere and a low-pressure system, it rains. Like sodium in water and or Mentos and Coke. We rationalize that way. Oh, he deserved every word I said to him. His actions demanded my response. There's nothing I could have done but say what I said. He forced me. And what I said wasn't really who I am. That just came out. Or if it's not the person, it's our circumstances. Now we're feeling that day. I was tired. I was frustrated. I was angry. I was hungry. I just had a bad day. A hard week. Jesus is teaching us here And you have to get this. We cannot separate our words from who we really are. Our words aren't somehow incidental to our circumstances. They come directly from our hearts. Our words are evidence of what is in our hearts. That's why an apology where someone says, I'm sorry for what I said. I don't know what I was thinking. That really wasn't me. I was just angry. Is that an apology? It's not. There's no repentance there. That's a defense. That's a defense. What Jesus is saying is this. Whatever, whenever you say something hurtful, it really is you who said it. And what you said really was what was in your heart. There's no other source from which our words come. The more sincere way to apologize for saying something hurtful is to say, I'm sorry for what I said. That was wrong of me. Period. And then if it's appropriate, go a little deeper and tell that person the heart sin from which those words came. What, what do we mean by heart sin? Look at verse 35. Let's, let's go a little deeper here. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. So Jesus is adding to the teaching here. It's not just that there are those who are good and, and those who are evil, and those who are good say good things, and those who are evil say evil things. There's more to it. He's saying that your heart is like a treasure chest or or a bank vault. It's where you hold close what is dear to you, the things you cherish, your treasures. And if your treasure is Christ, or, or as Jesus will teach us in the next chapter, if it is the kingdom of heaven, 
the lordship of Christ, if that's your treasure that you're keeping in your heart, then what you say will prove that that's true. No one will have any doubt that your treasure is Christ because they heard what you said and they heard what you consistently say. Your words will be filled with grace. As Paul taught us in Colossians, they'll be seasoned with salt. Do you remember that? What you say will nourish others. In Ephesians, he says, for those who are in Christ, who have put on Christ, our words will be good for building up. Ephesians 4.29. And he also says, our words will be fitting to the occasion. They'll give grace to those who hear. Our words, when we're treasuring Christ, will reveal kindness and a soft heart and thanksgiving and forgiveness towards others because we're treasuring the forgiveness we have in Christ. See, gracious speech is evidence of a heart that treasures Christ. And it's also true, the opposite is also true. Corrupt speech reveals a heart that has treasures other than Christ, doesn't it? If your heart is treasuring your own image, your own reputation, what kind of speech is going to come out? Well, speech that makes you look good. It's pretty simple. So maybe you'll exaggerate the truth just a little bit to make yourself look a little bit better. That's what Instagram's for. That's lying. It's sin. Maybe you'll slander someone else, lie about them to make yourself look a little bit better. Maybe we'll gossip to make ourselves appear more righteous or more intelligent or more just or more aware or more hip or more something than everyone else. But, but, but each of those are what we call surface-level sins that reveal a deeper heart sin, a heart that is treasuring something other than Christ. All sins of the tongue work this way. Think about, think about flattery. It's actually more in the Bible about flattery than gossip. Did you know that? If, if we're around someone that we want to like us, we'll use flattery to get them to like us. Why? Well, because we're treasuring their admiration or their acceptance of us. Flattery reveals that our worth is somehow dependent on their opinion of us. And so we intentionally distort what we say to benefit that other treasure. One pastor says, gossip is to say something behind someone's back that you would not say to their face. And flattery is to say something to their face that you wouldn't say behind their back. <laughs> both are sinful forms of speech. Why? Because both reveal that there's something you're treasuring in your heart more than Christ. Are you, are you seeing how this works? Our words reveal our treasures. So, so if you're someone who gets really angry when you feel disrespected, what does that reveal? What are you treasuring? Probably your pride. If, if disrespect leads you to sin verbally, it's probably because your pride is something that you treasure more than Christ. If someone doesn't think as highly of you as you think of yourself, you're going to sin with your words in order to beat them into submission. And we see this principle in every area of life with our speech. 
go into somebody's kitchen and tell them how to cook. (laughs) Tell a grown man how to drive. (laughs) Tell someone who has studied a subject for years and years that they don't know what they're talking about because of something you saw on YouTube. (laughs) Grandparents. There's a lot of grandparents here. What happens when you tell your adult children how to discipline their kids and feed their kids and clothe their kids? Watch out, right? You are walking into a high-security treasure vault and there are armed guards. You're messing with any number of treasures when you do that. Their kids their responsibility to care for their kids, and their relationship with you. At least three treasures are at stake. And so you're going to hear that come out with their words. And because you've already revealed that controlling someone else's kids is a treasure to you, and they're not submitting to you, well, you're not going to go down quietly either, and what do we have It's a recipe for a fight, isn't it? Clashing treasures. You see how this works? Our words reveal what we're treasuring. Manipulative words, guilt-trippy words, passive-aggressive words. We've got all sorts of ways of doing this. Our mouths are incredibly creative at doing this because they are the first line of weaponry we use to promote and to defend the treasures in our hearts. Last thing on this issue, and we have to say this, because when Jesus said these things, the devil had not invented Facebook and Twitter yet. But the same concept applies. What you write, or what you type, reveals what's in your heart, just as much as what you say. Probably, possibly more. Here's why. When you write something, you can edit it. Right? You can actually see the venom right in front of you. And then you have to click enter to send it. And yet, we still end up revealing a whole lot of what's in our hearts because we do just that. Some of us will actually go through the entire process, turn on the computer or a phone or whatever it is, log into the account, start typing, look at what we're typing, see the poison there, and click enter. And this so reveals what's in our hearts that even if the program says, are you sure you want to send this very mean and nasty rant into the world for all to see, you would still click yes. And then if it popped up yet another screen, this is your daily reminder that what you're about to send is never going away. Are you sure you want your boss and your church and your kids to see this? And you say, yes, of course, it's in my heart. And then in desperation, the program warns, your mother will see this too. (laughs) And what would we do? We would still click send because what we write is coming from our hearts. It's who we are. And I'm going to tell you right now, if you regularly or even just occasionally send out venom or gossip or exaggerations onto the internet, friend, you need to delete your social media account yesterday. 
yesterday. Do not wait another moment. By some sorcery, Mark Zuckerberg has got you convinced that hell is worth this. You need to delete your account and never, ever, ever return to it. I'm dead serious. It's not worth it. You're not missing anything. And if you're thinking, Dustin, why are you you being so serious? It's just words, right? Words are just words. They don't matter. I'm just blowing off a little steam commenting on this video, whatever it is. Look again at our text. Look again at verses 36 and 37. Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you'll be justified. and By your words, you'll be condemned. This is, I don't have to explain this. But in expository preaching, sometimes I have to really mind to get the, the, the true meaning to you from the text. This is very plain, isn't it? People will give an account for every careless word they speak. It means what it says. Every careless word. And by your words you'll be justified, and by words you'll be condemned. That means every word counts. When the Lord returns, the righteous are going to be justified. The unrighteous will be condemned. We believe that. And what aspect of our lives will be under particular scrutiny on that day? Our words. Our words, what you wrote, what you typed, what you said in the heat of the moment, what you said when you were hungry and exhausted and the baby's crying, what you said to that coworker who never gets anything right, what you said to your brother who wasn't pulling his weight, what you said to your sister in your frustration, what you said about her, what you said about him, what you said about them. From every haphazard, careless, thoughtless word to the other extreme too, to to the most carefully thought out, intentional things we said and everything in between, by your words, you'll be justified. By your words, you'll be condemned. And if you're thinking right now, well, I'm in deep trouble. Deep, deep trouble. Well, you're right. You're absolutely right. Why? What, what did James tell us? Let's look at that again. James 3, 6 through 8. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. I think James is meditating on Jesus' words, isn't he? For every kind of beast and bird or reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. No human being can tame the tongue. Now let's just put these together. If no human being can tame the tongue and we're going to be judged by our tongues... We are in trouble. What hope is there? There is no way out of this. If you're going to be judged by what you say and you can't 
control what you say. If you can't filter out the unrighteousness and the sin that's in your heart, if this is the human condition, what hope is there? There's no hope. None of us is going to be found righteous, not without Christ. There's no hope because our tongues are messengers of our hearts. They carry the breath of our souls. And our souls, our hearts are furiously treasuring the self. Our hearts are frantically treasuring and clinging to the things of this world. And not the kingdom of heaven. You see, in the flesh, in the way that we come into this world, we can't hold as a treasure something that we can't see and hear and feel and touch. It isn't natural to us. We can't do it. We are morally incapable. Morally incapable. We desperately need new hearts. Spiritual hearts. Spiritual hearts that can treasure spiritual truths. We must be born again by the Holy Spirit. Born again with new hearts. Only then can we treasure Christ and His kingdom. Only then can we repent of false treasures and receive the forgiveness that He offers and then learn to treasure our fellowship with Him. Only then Only then from renewed hearts can our words begin to change. Some of you already have new creation hearts. Hearts that were were ready-made to treasure the kingdom of heaven. You received that by grace. You've already been born again into Christ, and so you're learning by reading the word, gathering with the church, hearing the word preached and praying. You're you're learning how to treasure Christ more and more and more. And through that process, your speech is changing because you're setting aside those old treasures because you're seeing Christ as the greater treasure. The Spirit is changing your speech because the Spirit has changed your treasure. No human being can tame the tongue, and that will always be true. But the Holy Spirit, who gives us new life in Christ, is no human being. So by the grace of God, your tongue is being brought under His control. You're not there yet, not completely. None of us is, and none of us will be, until we see Christ face to face. We still say things that we regret immediately. Our tongues still reveal sin in our hearts that needs to be mortified, put to death. And here's how we do that. When you, when you sin with your tongue, and you probably will later on today, whether it's anger or slander or gossip or flattery or, or crude joking or lying, and there's lots more. But in some way, something's going to come out of your mouth that is not gracious. And here's what you need to do. You need to recognize it as sin quickly. Don't explain it away. Don't make excuses for it and say, that was me. Confess that sin of the mouth and then examine yourself. You must do this or it will never change. 
Examine yourself to see what false treasures in your heart brought that out of you. And then confess that sin too. If you are in Christ, when when judgment day comes, here's what's going to happen. There's going to be this record of slowly but surely your words becoming more and more gracious, more and more seasoned with salt, more and more fitting to the occasion, more and more thankful. And And there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We know that. You've been justified by him. You've been made right by him. And your life will show it. Your words will be more gracious. Your life will bear the good fruit of Christ's work. Some of you, though, don't fit in that category. Your tongue betrays you in a much more dire way. And you know it. For for some of you, you know that your sarcasm reveals a bitter root in you that isn't dying. It's just going deeper and deeper and becoming more of who you are. For others, if you're honest with yourself, you know that your manipulative words, the way you try to twist people to your own desires, you know that your words reveal a desire for control that has only gotten worse the older you've got. Some of you, when you pause to think about it, if you realize everything, if you just just step back and look back at everything you said during the week, 95% of it will be complaints. You are a complainer. Nothing's ever quite right, and there's always something to complain about. And and, and even even though complaining never leaves you satisfied, because sin never satisfies, you take some weird, sick pleasure in it. And some, some of you might be surgically skilled at destroying people with your words. And you're utterly ashamed, and you're totally embarrassed, but you just can't help it. No matter what you try. Because it's coming straight from your heart, and that's who you are. No matter what you do, therapy, education, medication, nothing works. Your words reveal your heart. Your heart is filled with sin and overflowing into the world around you. And nothing works. Because you've not been born again into Christ. You don't treasure Christ. And you don't treasure him. Because you don't know at the core of who you are. You don't know the power of the cross. You don't don't know that when he died on the cross for you. He took the guilt of your words. He took the condemnation that is coming your way. Because of your worthless treasures. He took that with him. It's like everything cruel you ever said, he said. And so he's the one condemned. By his death, he crushed your death so that he could be your greatest treasure. And he did that for you so that what what would come out of your mouth would just be grace, grace, 
God's grace, grace that's greater than my sin. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, for whoever is in that second category, right now, hearing clearly the gospel, hearing clearly that they stand condemned for their sin were it not for Christ, would you, by your Spirit, wake them up? Would you give them the ability that they don't have to treasure Christ? so that their life can change. And for those of us here, Lord, who, who we know we're treasuring Christ, at least a lot, a bit, and yet we, we are troubled daily with our sins of the tongue, would you make us more aware of those so that we can be more aware of where we're not treasuring Christ totally and completely. We thank you for this warning, Jesus. Were it not for warnings like this from you, we would probably be a whole a lot more confident in ourselves. Thank you for taking that confidence away and letting our only boast to be in you. Christ's name. Amen.